Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Looking for a new fast-paced, nail-biting thriller to fill the Dexter and Hannibal-shaped holes in your life? Check out Hangman, a new novel by Jack Heath. Hangman introduces a darkly mesmerizing FBI consultant whose skill at finding criminals comes at a price. Every time he saves a life, he takes one. Hangman is available on Audible and everywhere books are sold. Visit bookclubbish.com to learn more about Hangman by Jack Heath and start reading today. Hey, listeners, sometimes you've heard us talk about how you can get extra content from the Crime Writers On team at Stitcher Premium. I just want to make a quick plug. Our special podcast, Married with Podcasts, that's a spinoff of this show in which we answer questions about marriage, work, relationships, pets, home improvement, sex, all kinds of stuff, is on Stitcher Premium. So if you join Stitcher Premium, you can get a free month. Just go to stitcherpremium.com slash crime and use the promo code crime at checkout. You can get episodes of Married with Podcast, plus you can get episodes of These Are Their Stories, a Law and Order podcast, a week early with no ads. Head on over to stitcherpremium.com slash crime and use the code crime at checkout to get your free month and check out all the extra content we're making at Stitcher Premium. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about true crime, pop culture, journalism. And this week, we'll look at HBO's moody adaptation of Gillian Flynn's best-selling novel, Sharp Objects. We'll also do a rundown on a whole bunch of true crime updates from Serial, S-Town, and In the Dark. Join me to do all of that and more is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. I am here to serve. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and rescue cat patron saint, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Yes, the word is out among the cats. I will save it for the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, the author behind the brilliant series of novels called The City Trilogy, our resident cynic and book club wrangler, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Salam alaikum. Toby, why don't you let us know uh, where are you this week as you are recording with us? Uh, I am at my family's place on Bear Island in Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. Majestic Lake Winnipesaukee. Mm. Majestic. Yeah, we had to. I actually just got here about half an hour ago. We had to take a boat over from a marina 
and uh, it's very beautiful. I will be tweeting as we go along mm. the sunset. Yeah, do you have a nice view where you are recording? I mean, do you have a window or you're on a screen porch? What do you, where are you? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll actually... I'll tweet something right now, but yeah, I'm just looking out over the water. Yeah, but you know when people sun, are listening to this uh, podcast, like that tweet is not going to come out it's at the be same an old time tweet. <laughs> as this podcast. I don't think well, Toby like knows to how this all now. works. Wait. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to time it so it comes out when this podcast Perfect. Stops. Perfect. Time Good it job, for like Toby. Friday morning. Either that or, or people, can, people can go back in my timeline and mm. see the beautiful pictures. Yeah, it's not impossible. It's not... So Lake yeah. Winnipesaukee, of course, is one of our most exciting destinations in New Hampshire. It's beautiful. The island places are beautiful. Like that is where to be on the lake. Sometimes you'll run into a Romney. Sometimes you'll run into yeah. Jimmy Fallon. Did you guys see that Jimmy Fallon was at Storyland this weekend? I didn't see that, but I know Adam Sandler was in town recently. Yeah. Well, let me just back up and tell folks so they get a little New Hampshire flavor. Uh, Winnipesaukee, right, is the big lake, and it can, you know we have a couple of well-known people that have uh, waterfront property there, like you said, Mitt Romney and his family, but also Jimmy Fallon from The Tonight Show. Their daughter is named Winnie after Winnie Pisaki. Because they and, uh, made oh, really? her here, apparently. They, apparently she was made here. <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. Yeah, and that's why Toby's oldest son is named Bear Island. And uh, and that's why that sometimes uh, Justin Timberlake is seen in New Hampshire because he's visiting Jimmy Fallon at his place right. in Winnipesaukee. So there's a place, a little uh, amusement park uh, north of the uh, the lakes and in the White Mountains called Storyland. It's the best. It's an amusement Storyland, park. Yeah, it's um... Storyland. That's their theme song. <laughs> it is, and as tuneless as Laura sang it, that's actually exactly what it sounds. That's it what it sounds like. They shoot the commercials <laughs> on an old VHS yep. camcorder. Yep. Storyland. Precious memories are written at Storyland. Yeah, it is very. Um, it's not. It's quaint as fuck. Quaint is another word for they don't put a lot of money. I in love Storyland. Do not denigrate Storyland. I like to go back to Storyland. I kind of miss it. Yeah, the theme is all fairy tales and whatnot. So like they can have Cinderella, but she can't be blonde like Walt Disney Cinderella. It's you know, Finderella. Finderella. <laughs> so apparently, uh, Jimmy Fallon and his family went to you know low rent uh, Walt Disney World which is Storyland and you know posed for photographs and it was just kind of a fun thing and i was kind of hmm. like wow you got like millions and millions of dollars and you're going for the uh, the two for one deal Storyland is rad I know I actually I, I, I like story then now they have a wooden roller coaster at Storyland they also have the polar coaster mm. where it's like you're going through an ice cube mm-hmm. but you're not if you ride um, the spinning turtles you will throw up a hundred times yes it's mm-hmm. been scientifically proven that they, I have thrown yeah. up so many times in those stupid spinning. I can't curls. even. I don't even go. I can't even go on the shoe ride there because I get motion sick. But I did go visit the old lady who lives in the shoe there. <laughs> this is why I love New Hampshire. Toby, are you still there? By the way, I'm still here. My story's about Storyland. <laughs> All right, this, uh, not this detailed. Wholesome. Okay, just checking because we did have some technical difficulties with you earlier. I but did like, public relations one summer for Storyland. They were a client of mine. That oh, was really? when they had yeah. the cat show. They had a circus oh, that featured yeah. not only the Wheel of Danger. They had to change it from Wheel of Death because yeah. they, want, they wanted kids to be scared. The Wheel of I Danger. Went to the cat show. To, right. To cats, a ca- cats on uh, tightrope. Uh, mm-hmm. Cats trapeze. jumping through like flaming hoops. Yeah. cats. I saw it. And they also had the quick change people. Which I still yeah, don't know how they right. do that. Yeah, yeah. I forgot, I forgot the, the axe This yeah. is why I love living in New Hampshire. 
Our amusement parks are hilarious to describe. Yeah. Well, yeah. Clark's Trading Post might take uh, precedent Listen, over, over the... <laughs> I, I know we have a podcast that's supposed to be about true crime, and it's supposed to be about the media around true crime, and everybody wants to hear us talk about sharp objects and a non sided yes, so we'll move on. And all this stuff. But can you please, Laura, just tell our audience of tens of thousands of people from all over the world, give them the thumbnail sketch of the phenomenon that is Clark's Trading Post. Go. Okay, so they have trained bears who eat ice cream, and they also look the same ice cream cone as the guy who trains the bears in their bear show. But the big act is the wolfman, because only in New Hampshire do you ride a train into the woods with your kids for a guy in an old truck with a gun to chase after you, shooting at you, mm-hmm. screaming, <laughs> get out of here, you flatlanders, this is my property. Pop, 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 pop. <laughs> and all these kids are like, ah! <laughs> and he looks like he, the Wolfman. He is, he is, that's his name, the Wolfman. And they actually have tryouts that's for right. this Wolfman yeah. because it is such a coveted position. Yeah. So when my son was like five, when we first went there, he was like, that's going to be my retirement job. Yeah. And we're like, what? Yeah, it's yeah. like San yeah. Diego Chicken, Philadelphia Fanatic. Wolfman. Wolfman. That's those mm-hmm. are the rankings of the mascots. So Absolutely. so far yeah. we've covered Storyland and Clark's Trading Post. We also have Santa's Village, which is yeah, another which New Hampshire amusement park. Yes, mm-hmm. oh. where Mick Foley, the wrestler, uh, will sometimes come and be Santa Claus, which yeah. is random. Mick Foley, who played Mankind in the How about a summer amusement park named for Santa? Santa. It's crazy. That, yeah. And then we also have uh, my favorite New Hampshire amusement park, which is Whale's Tail. Where yes. every summer, my family, mm-hmm. led by me, rents a cabana at Whale's Tail, invites a bunch of people. We pretend that we're like on a Caribbean resort, have tableside <laughs> bar service. Although we sneak a whole bunch of alcohol in. Sorry, Whale's Tail. Every Tale. year, we sneak yeah. a whole bunch of alcohol in, and we do it up at the White Mountains Water Park. Guys, you need to come to New Hampshire. If you've come never visit. been, you got to come. Because <laughs> yeah. we are as quaint and stupid as we sound. There's yeah. other stuff to do, too. Yeah. There's other stuff to do, too. It's yeah. true. You can like go hiking in natural Oh, fuck that, Tony. Totally. Oh, what's to, what's no, to put on no, shoes no. and go get exercise? Get out of here, you flatlander. Exactly. I'll pop you. <laughs> you, you can meet the future president of the United States. He could be here at any time, or she could be here at any time. Uh, and you could literally just talk to him. 18 miles them. of gorgeous coastline. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, all the apples counting the estuary. <laughs> that estuary adds a whole bunch of hundreds of miles. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Well, I'm sure that uh, all of our listeners who live in good places are all bored to yeah, death right like, now. They're like, that's not my summer vacation. <laughs> I went someplace awesome. I didn't go to a water park on a mountain, which sounds really cold. All right, Laura, before we move on to the actual content of the podcast this week, I know yes. we spent a lot of time talking about um, basically being the tourism department for the state of New Hampshire. Yes. Yes. Um, last time you updated us on the feral cat that you had tried to wrangle at your house. Stephen King the cat is what you had named yes. him. He yes. had a giant set of balls, which you had shared on social yes. media. Yes. What happened to Stephen King the cat? So after about three and a half weeks, so he wasn't a feral cat. It turned out, I believe Stephen King, the cat, was a cat that somebody just dumped and abandoned, which is very sad because he was a very nice cat once um, he kind of came to trust people again. So I captured Stephen King, the cat. I took him to Betsy, the great cat lady um, that we got Stampy from. And it's, you, you really can't make this stuff up. She has like a, a kind of a downstairs area where she brings the cats in. And we, we had gotten him out. We were looking at him. And I said, oh, do you have any kittens? And we went upstairs. 
Her husband not knowing we were in there opened the door. Stephen King escaped. Uh. No! But you know what? I went out in the woods and I meowed like a cat and he came back to me. Wait a minute. You went out into the woods alone (laughs) looking for Stephen King. I gave the call of the cat. Yes. We were standing out there going, meow, meow. And he meowed and we caught him. Yes. Did he charge you from behind and you had to spin around really fast? Yeah, exactly. And I was like, ah, no, like, don't kill Blair me. Witch no. with cats. This is why you are the cat lady of the podcast. And we all laugh yeah. at you. Okay. It, it is. So we captured him. He Stephen King went off to the vet. He got the ball snipped off. Mm. Um, he unfortunately also had an infected paw. And the sad thing, um, this is why Stephen King isn't going to be coming to live at our house, is he has kitty AIDS. Oh. Um, so he has to be an only cat. Feline so it doesn't HIV really, is what you Yeah, think it's like you FIV mean? or something. Yeah, which isn't technically AIDS. It's actually feline I've they just message yeah. it really well. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. too bad. But I will tell you, I believe he's just going to be living at Betsy's house because she has fallen in love with him. And I told her she would because he was a very nice cat. But here's the word. This is this is the, what the latest is. My neighborhood apparently is now a mecca for stray cats. Mm. Well, what the hell, and, Laura? Everybody's getting chlamydia and AIDS. <laughs> You know, know. all the cats. It's like the 80s. Yeah. It's it's like a Turkish bathhouse for crying out loud. I don't know. Well, it could be because so there's now a young female cat on the loose who only comes out at night and um, she likes to hang out at my neighbor. We have a young neighbor at the top of the hill who who drinks beer by his fire pit and she comes out and shows herself during the fire pit parties um, and we haven't seen her since. So that is our next project is to catch um, baby mama who comes out during the fire pit parties. So firemen Ken right now <laughs> is like WTF. I yes, married this spunky private detective journalist lady who was like my sexy wife and who has now literally made her life's mission rounding up every stray cat that crosses her path or that crosses our neighbor's paths. Yeah, he's he's like, you know what he said last week? He goes, you know what? Because he's older than I am. He says, I, I don't have to worry what's going to happen when I die because you're just going to have like 30 cats uh, and yeah. it's starting now. I don't think he's going to be dead. I think that's like, I think no. like within the next time we record a podcast, you're probably going to have 30 cats. I might. I very well might. <laughs> oh, goodness. So that's the latest, but Stephen King is doing well. And um, yeah, I will keep you updated. All right. Shall we move on to the content portion of the podcast? Let's- now that we've like had enough chit chat. To fill a million glasses of chit-chat. I think we, we're good. We're ready. All right, Kevin, can you please read this for me? True, True Crime, crime podcast, podcast Update! Big news in the Adnan Syed case, a.k.a. the serial season one case. Maryland's Court of Appeals has granted cert in the post-conviction relief case of serials Adnan Syed. That means instead of scheduling a new trial or upholding the overturned verdict, the prosecution will argue in front of the state's highest court that Adnan's conviction should be reinstated. Kevin, what is the schedule for this case now? Okay, so the court has granted cert. So the state goes first because they were the ones who filed this appeal. Uh, they are have to submit some arguments, some written arguments this uh, fall, I believe September, and then the defense has to submit theirs by October, and then oral arguments are likely going to be scheduled for December or January, and a final outcome from the state Supreme Court will likely be published next summer, yeah, July or August next summer, about yeah. a year from now. That's it's kind of the pace that they're on. So one bit of clarification, I know this is not 
great for like the pro and non folks, but I also know that it's not unexpected. I think Colin Miller said on this very podcast that he kind of expected the state to grant cert because in the previous court decision, there had been a dissenting judge. Yeah. Uh, and when there's a dissent, very often the state will take the case up. Uh, the courts will take the case up. But the defense is actually going to get to argue on both of the things that overturned the conviction or that were that were sort of cited by two previous courts as reasons for the conviction to be overturned, both the Asian McLean alibi evidence and the faulty cell phone tower stuff. So they're kind of both back on the table now. So is that yeah. like a- everything comes back on the table because it almost starts like a new appeal. Right. But the, the arguments tend to around these issues because they have flipped back and forth would be that one side would say in, in regards to the alibi witness uh you know respondent is wrong the appellate you know, they, they get to argue everything again including right. i believe uh prosecutorial misconduct I'm, I'm not certain but that sort of got pushed aside in judge welch's opinion so everything comes back up huh. and so while they are arguing that the lower court aired they basically it's in upholding you know, the overturned because what, yeah. what the defense ends up filing is what's considered what's called a cross petition yeah so they're saying okay so it's like oh yeah well how about this but they took that up too right they take it up too it's a, yeah so that's like, part of the process there could be whole, they can't say we'll take yours but not the other one. so there was some precedent sent by the previous decision that benefited the state mm-hmm. that is now back up in the air again yeah yeah they're risking that it has to do with uh timelines on waivers the reason and i'm going to probably mess up the um uh, summarizing this, but the reason that the Court of Special Appeals, which was the three-judge panel, the reason that they rejected the cell tower evidence was that they said that uh, essentially t- too much time had gone by. Uh, he'd on, waived his right he'd to. He'd waived his yeah, right to, yeah. to argue that point. Right, right. And, and that was, as, as Legal Surrey pointed out, in and of itself, that precedent is a win for the state because they could use that in other appeals cases. But now they're pretty much willing gonna, to put that on the table again. Hey, like you said, they're throwing all their tiles back in the Scrabble bag and they're pulling tiles again. So, 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 so everything is kind of up on the table. So, t- best grabs. case scenario here, uh, Adnan's overturned verdict is upheld, and this court could affirm that on both sets of things and set precedents in both the alibi routine by routine thing, which is like a fake thing that they could set precedent on, uh-huh. saying like you can't use that anymore. And this waiver was not... It depends on how they would write the decision. Right. But yes, the defense only has to win on one of the points. Right. Which is what they did in both of the previous... But they run on two opposite points. On two opposite points. So, I mean, there's a chance that, you know, again, they could latch on to one. They only need to get one. And if that's the case, then Anand Syed's conviction is vacated once and for all. Right. Unless that goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's very unlikely that... The Supreme Court would take up this case, right? Uh, and, and then when that happens, it's like, okay, you got to schedule a new trial, and then a whole bunch of other variables can can come in. But yeah, it's going to be at least another year. Now we know that Adnan, behind bars, has mentally prepared himself for this timeline. Yeah. Even you know from his his original post conviction, Robbie has case. said a year to him is nothing at this point. Yeah, unfortunately, it is nothing. And I think that you know when you talk about. You know, justice may be working in your favor, but at an extremely slow and detrimental pace to your to your your life and your livelihood. I mean, I think we see this in in the Curtis Flowers news that we're going to talk about. But yeah, it makes it very difficult. 
I think for some people to to you know see this as a win, and I don't, you know, I'm I am concerned that this is going to the court of appeals because anything can happen. Look at what happened with in the um, Brendan Dassey case. The Brendan Dassey case. Yeah, he got up to the the higher it went up. The Supreme Court refused to take it up, so Brendan Dassey is still in prison. He's still in prison, and that uh. whole line of appeals, that's done. That's yeah. that's yeah. set law and precedent. If they want to come back, they got to come up with a completely different legal argument. Right. And uh, you know, as an aside, Adnan Syed does have other arguments. Right. That they that he can use if this if if this doesn't go the way he wants. Right. It isn't like there aren't any more arrows in the quiver because right. there and are. And we also don't know what arrows there might be. Right. All he has to spend is money and time. Like one of the things that I always wonder about, and Laura, I don't know if you wonder about this too. And like I'm not saying yeah. that I want this to drag on longer. But first of all, part of me, and uh, Rabia, I know you listen to this podcast, so I apologize in advance for saying this because I know that like another year is not good. Part of me, like likes it when this goes to court again because Justin Brown is an amazing lawyer and it's Mm -hmm. just so amazing to just sort of get somebody that's so good and hear like what all the problems are. It's like a great reminder on a bigger scale of like what is wrong with this case and what's wrong with the justice system. But like, don't you wonder, Laura Bricker, uh, Little Miss uh, Detective, (laughs) Private Eye, whether or not, and I wonder this too, and I'm friends with people on the defense side and I literally don't know, but don't you wonder if they've got something that's not an appeal thing, that's like a new evidence thing that they're just holding on to that would come out in a new proceeding or that they would release after perhaps his conviction was overturned? Like, I'm dying to know, like, what is that bombshell? I'm dying yeah. to know. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely want to know. And I get it. Strategically and ethically, they can't release something like that until the time is appropriate when they're in the proceeding where it's appropriate to use information. But you know that, you know, they have been doing all sorts of investigations as this case has been going on. And since Justin Brown took over the case, I'm sure there's more information about this case that's helpful to Adnan's defense um, that we don't know but that it's just ethically not time for it to be revealed. And that drives me crazy because I can't stand not knowing things, especially about things that I want to know the outcome for that reason. I wish things would speed up, but, you know, the wheels of justice slowly turn. We all know that Susan Simpson found a a Post-it note that says who D.B. Cooper is (laughs) and who stole the Lindbergh baby. So I'm sure there's some other things that we will hear about. <laughs> Never mind. If you see Susan Simpson walking by with like a shovel and some dirt on her face, like just ignore her. Don't worry about it. It'll come out someday in a podcast. I think the investigative team of Madeline Barron and Susan Simpson would be like, oh, that, watch that, out. Yeah, they, they would get some some really good cases. All right. Well, um, speaking of appeals, we I don't want to like have you read the echoey thing, Kevin, because right. this is not good, and I don't want to make light of it, but. Uh, We want to hear what's new in the Curtis Flowers case, but first there is some very sad news about Curtis Flowers' family. Uh, His mother, who we heard on the podcast, passed away. Uh, Toby, have you heard this news? And and what do you think of this outcome here that, you know, we heard she was one of the final voices in the podcast talking about, you know, continuing to visit him in prison, having not been able to touch her son in years and, and preparing for the eventuality of his execution or release. And she's passed on before any of, really any movement in the case. What do you think about this news, Toby? It's sad. You know, I mean, I think that's that's one of the things with being incarcerated for that period of time is that things like that happen. 
and you're not a part of it. Yeah. You know, you're kind of getting it secondhand. So it's sad. And the timing is, is definitely uh, weird because it's right after the podcast basically ended. So it's too bad. Isn't there some like some question about whether he's going to be able to attend the funeral? Yeah, well, I mean, we know that his lawyers did file a motion this week asking the court to order the Mississippi Department of Corrections to allow him to attend the funeral, which is Saturday. Um, but as of today, there's no word on a response from the court or um, whether they're even going to take that up this week. What's been going on, Laura, you know, with the legal proceedings post-podcast? Because I know that Curtis's attorneys have been filing stuff, right? Yes, yes. And, and there's a great graphic if you go on the APM Reports in the Dark website, which is much more detailed than what I'm going to get into. But it's it's visually, you can actually see if this happens, this will happen. If this happens, this will happen. So there are two separate um, side-by-side efforts right now going on in his case. The first is a direct appeal, and that's a petition for uh, writ of cert, um, which is asking the Supreme Court to review the case. And that focuses on one question. They're asking the uh, U.S. Supreme Court to look into, should Doug Evans' history of adjudicated purposeful race discrimination be considered when looking at how he used his preemptory strikes in jury selection? Um, So that is going to be... Yeah, so that that will be reviewed likely in October 2018, whether to grant that and actually listen to the oral arguments. But the thing that's happened recently is the petition for post-conviction relief. Now, that was um, filed previously, but it's been on hold in the state Supreme Court since 2016. But since the podcast, they have filed two new um, amendments to that original petition. Um, I think we talked about the first one, which was Odell Cookie Hallman uh, lying on the stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second, which I feel like is even more inflammatory, is the information that the state had interviewed, arrested, and held Willie James Hempel, the actual Willie James Hempel, not the 30 other ones, as an alternate suspect in the Tardy murders, but they hadn't presented that information to the defense. So mm-hmm. both of those amendments have been filed since um, In the Dark reporting happened and since the podcast, I think the last one was filed right after the podcast was ending or during the last episode. So we're kind of in a holding pattern um, to find out. I haven't seen anything in terms of an actual court date. Obviously, the goal on all fronts is to get Curtis a new trial. And if if that comes down, you know, they could do a new trial. They could, you know, retry the case for the seventh freaking time. Um, they could give him a plea deal or they could just say we're not going to retry it. Right. Um, it's so heartbreaking with his mother dying this last week. It's just the most heartbreaking thing. I yeah. can't even... When I saw that, I just oh, it this killed case me. has been such yeah, yeah, it's such a kick in the in the gut every time you hear something about this case, and to see that was just absolutely heartbreaking. It was, and what really killed me about it was, uh, excuse me for a second, because it's like really upsetting, but like that his dad really communicates through his mom. Like we heard that on the podcast, right? Like his dad uh, is like hard yeah. of hearing, and his dad has a hard time sort of interacting with the public and with reporters and I'm presuming with Curtis himself. And his mom really served as the translator for Curtis and for his dad. Like, so I just think about how his dad is going to function, you know, going forward. Is he going to continue those visits? Will he be able to do so? Because it really seemed like his mom... Uh, was the glue keeping this whole thing together. So it's truly heartbreaking. It really is. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about, 
you know how the system works and how it doesn't work. And there was, you know, an interview in in the dark with a I think a retired state supreme court judge who made the argument that yeah, I mean because. The cases came to us and they were reversed. That shows the justice system. That justice working. system works. And on paper, he is correct. Yes, that is how the just the checks and balances are supposed to work. What doesn't work, though, is the passage of time and that it takes so long to get to that point. And in the interim, a man cannot live his life because right. he has lost his liberty. Twenty years. In a lot of cases, if he were convicted. Uh, a first degree murder, he would have already served his term. That's right. You know, t- twenty five years. A, l- a lot of places that would be the sentence. And Look has- at the crimes that the real Willie James Hemphill committed. He's out of prison. He's yeah. he like, you know, hurt people. He set fires. He like did serious like assault crimes. Yeah, and Cookie is not on death row. The, the tragedy of it is, and and this is what I think we understood is that in the real world, what someone like. Curtis Flowers has lost, whether or not you can either think that he was wrongfully convicted or at least that his uh, chance at exoneration was delayed by three decades, is that he lost all this time of his own. And, you know, you tend to think, well, okay, he didn't get his job and, he, you know, he's down in his career. Like, what, what are all the disadvantages of that? Well, the big one is that, you know, what you lose of your family. Right. And to, the idea to be that you can't be, be there in that moment, as Toby said. And, you know, yeah, is it true for... Anyone who's convicted and is behind bars, they've lost their liberty. You won't be able to be there for good moments and for tragic moments and all those family moments that you that it's necessary to be at. Yeah, and that's that's part of like the small tragedy in this larger tragedy for somebody like Curtis Flowers is that he he couldn't be there. Uh, I don't know. It didn't sound. It sounded like maybe it was sudden. I don't know if she had a lingering illness. We don't, don't know. know. We don't know. But like if she had spent some time in the hospital before she went. You know, anybody else could have gone and said goodbye. You can't get that back. You can sue the state later on for, you know, a wrongful reparation, but you can't get that back. All right, let's move on. Kevin, can you please read this for me? True Crime crime Podcast podcast Update. Well, there's also some news out of Alabama that's got a lot of our listeners talking and concerns the S-Town podcast. Representatives for John McLemore's estate are suing the podcast production team for profiting off his identity. They say McLemore never gave written consent to Brian Reed and the podcast embarrassed and exploited him. And there's also a claim in the lawsuit that Brian Reed had an obligation to report John McLemore. McLemore's suicidal ideation. Now, Toby, I think of the four of us, when we listened to S-Town on this podcast, you had the most concerns of any of us. I think you were the only one who had uh, these kinds of concerns. So just to remind our audience, can you just articulate the concerns from listeners who didn't like what it was Brian Reed did with the S-Town story? Yeah, well, I think, and we used to talk about this more uh, when we started off, when we were talking about serial, but that, you know, sort of inevitably there's an exploitive relationship between a reporter and the subject that they're covering. And there's, you know, there's this sort of continuum. And on one end, there's like a reporter who writes a puff piece about his subject. And, um, you know, but, th- but there's still they're still trying to make a story, right? So it's not going to come out exactly the way the person want the subject wants, but it, it's generally 
positive. And on the other side, you have, you know, examples where a reporter sort of, you know, quote unquote, betrays his subject. And that's what, uh, you know, uh, Janet Malcolm's, um, uh, the uh, journalist and the murderer uh, about Fatal Vision by Joe McGinnis and, and how he had sort of cozied up to this accused murderer and then uh, it sort of sort of acted like a friend and then wrote a book basically saying that he had he had actually killed his family. So you've got this continuum and it's like where on the continuum just Brian reads uh, you know how he covered John McLemore fall. What's a reasonable expectation from John McLemore, especially after he's dead, that Brian Reed is going to uh, obey sort of his wishes about what he was willing to have reported about him. You know, to a certain extent, the subject doesn't get to drive the story. Mm-hmm. I don't, the, the, you know, having veto power over what gets yeah. into a story and what doesn't isn't sort of their traditional role, I think, that, that goes into it. But I think the case that they're making is that John McLemore is not like a public figure until you know, the podcast was made. And he died, so we didn't have any say after he died, right? That's kind right. of what the lawsuit says, yeah. Right. So, I, you know, and I guess my my feeling at the time was Brian Reed was taking what was originally him going down and trying to investigate a, a, a murder, a crime that uh, John McLemore claimed had happened, and then it turned out nothing had really happened. But he found Macklemore to be kind of an interesting person. And then when after Macklemore commits suicide, he comes back down and, and, and sort of wants to do a story on that. For me, I think that's a little bit uncomfortable. And especially what he ended up doing with it. Like he was trying to sort of construct, I think, uh, a picture of Macklemore and then also the society and town in which he lived. And that ended up being this fairly, I don't think it's seamy or, or unseemly, either one. But, but he does talk about, you know, closeted gay men in rural Alabama. He talks about the tattooing and these sort of pain games that he was getting mm-hmm. uh, his buddy Tyler to play with them. I guess play is the right word, but, but that he was is basically this sort of masochistic thing that they were doing. And so, yeah, I mean, it seems after he's dead, has no say in this to really be showing this side of him that he hadn't exposed while he was alive. Yeah. Did seem a little odd. I, I realize that's not very concise. No, but. that's okay. I mean, I, I think the concerns of our of many of our listeners and people who who ha- disagree with the pr- sort of premise and product of the podcast that I've seen out there are basically like, uh, John McLemore is dead, and Brian Reed told a story that wouldn't have been told if John McLemore had still been participating, and it was an exploitative story. Uh, maybe not. I'm I'm just yeah. telling you what the concerns are. Right. I'm not telling you Might what have been I the think. Same exact story. You're right. Um, yeah. But go ahead. I'll tell you what I think, and Kevin, you can respond. Mm-hmm. I think that John McLemore approached Brian Reed. He literally approached him. That's, That's a mitigating in the factor. Yeah. Uh, John McLemore yeah. told him a lot of things on tape. He yeah. never signed a release, but he also consented to being recorded, which is an audio, the same as signing a release. And I think that after he died, 
the details that Brian Reed exposed were not details that John McLemore had told him and said these are off the record. They were details he gleaned from interviews with other people who were living who consented to tell him those details. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff about John McLemore's sex life came from another man who was living who consented to be interviewed by Brian Reed in a hotel room and who told him about all these encounters. And that is that man's story to tell. And he consented to tell it on tape. The stories about John McLemore's, you know, masochistic tattooing rituals with Tyler were told to Brian Reed by Tyler. Kevin, what do you think of this? Like, do you think that Brian uh, Reed exploited John McLemore? Do you think he was no. within the journalistic ethical boundaries? I, I believe he is within the journalistic ethical boundaries. I think what this case actually turns on is a state law in Alabama, which is called the right to publicity, which is an elevation of the right to privacy. And we use those in capital letters and whether or not you think you have a right to privacy in certain areas, whether you're a public figure or a private figure. This is a step above where it isn't just saying uh, your rights are not just that people can't nose around in your business, but it's also that you have some agency over whether or not they publish that or use it in a uh, in a mass medium. And it is primarily focused on commercial enterprises meeting commercial endorsements and maybe TV movie shows. I don't know. It isn't intended to be a shield against being covered in the news. Right. Although I guess... Is this news? Is it entertainment? Well, That's I, the I big mean, question, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to say, well, they made money. Well, well, every news organization makes money to some extent to right. sustain they itself. Sell ads. But that does not make it a commercial enterprise. I think a lot of it's going to have to do with different interpretations of that. I mean, you have... But doesn't the, John McLemore opting in himself, pursuing well, look, his story yes. being told? There is the moral yes. argument, there is the professional ethical argument, and then there's the legal argument here, and that seems to be the thing. The estate which is, I don't know, I didn't recognize the name of the guy. He's the lawyer for the estate. He says he's like representing his mother and some other people, and they think, you know, uh, they want a cut of whatever the money was. For a podcast that was Uh, about a dead man's family trying to find his money. It's a little ironic, yeah. It's ironic. It it is ironic. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, but, you know, it just seems like uh, whether or not this actually falls under the legal precedence that they're citing here, I don't know. I would normally normally I would have said this is no merit. You're dead. You don't have any expectation of privacy. But I think the state of Alabama has this carve out that the the estate is going to lean on. Laura, thoughts? Uh, yeah, I I agree with both of you guys. I mean, the thing is, he consented to the interview. He was taped. He knew he was being taped. I've seen that people had concerns that, that the podcast outed him as gay. I feel like if it was that much of a concern for him that he was not to be outed he wouldn't have gone and done a taped, multiple taped hours of interview with Brian Reed. You can say, well, he maybe he wasn't, you know, sophisticated enough to know what he was getting into. And he, he didn't realize that all of this could be used. But at the same time, you're talking to a reporter who, by the way, you have like courted to get down there. I think you kind of expect that some story is going to be told. Yes, the story originally was this, you know, murder that was, you know, being covered up. But at the same time, the interviews clearly took a different turn. Mm -hmm. And I I do find it a little ironic that this family that didn't really have that much to do with him 
claims to know what he was thinking right. or not thinking about what was going to go in the podcast. Exactly. Like, really? I mean, not to be, wasn't his mother like pretty much like just out of it the yes. whole time? Yes. Like, and she's the only one that was around him. So how the hell do they know what he wanted? I right. mean, honestly, and, and it's convenient that this also happened right after, um, didn't they, they just got the TV deal. Right. Yeah. Is there a difference though then between consenting to publicity and versus consenting to bad publicity in terms of well i mean you think that seems to be what it's what it's turning on if yeah. the case whether or not he signed some sort of release and then there was a podcast that just made him out to be a hero with Let's, no wait, flaws can we just talk for a second about signing releases i have never in my life except when i wrote a book had somebody that i interviewed sign a release right exactly to, to be part of a story the only time i did that was when people had pictures that I needed to use right. that were family pictures mm-hmm. in my book. They had to sign a release. As it's a, a copyright reporter, release, as a, yeah. Uh, yeah, as a Not journalist. Not a consent release, yeah. I have never had anybody sign a consent release. Never. As a journalist, that is not something you do. Ever. Ever. Well, I just think the issue, for me at least, is by talking to a journalist about anything, does that mean they get to dig in and publicize everything they can find out about you. Publicize or report? Those are two different things. I, I think you can make the argument that, the, you know, what exactly is being reported in the John McLemore thing? Mm-hmm. That to me, he did research and he put together what was in essence sort of a, you know, a long podcast essay. But he wasn't really reporting on a story. There wasn't really a story there as far as I know. I mean, he was... He was sort of, he was painting a picture. I mean, it was like, it was, it was an essay. And so I that's guess your my opinion. question is. I actually think that's an opinion, not fact. I'm just going to say. <laughs> because you could say that when you do a, a human interest story on somebody that is a, a look at their life, that does involve reporting. Reporting is the tool. Yeah. It's not, it's not the product. Reporting is the tool. Are we sticking to facts now on this show? No. Oh. <laughs> uh, oh, burn. Somebody's um, on island time and getting sassy. But then the other thing is, I mean, I think, you know, I guess uh, point taken that you do reporting or you do research or whatever, but then what the output is, or even, or I guess maybe what the subject is, is, is John McLemore news? Mm. Well, is it journalism or is it entertainment? Which is it? And I think that's the point of this suit. But how do you do a a character profile on somebody who's dead? I mean, if you're going to go with the original S-Town story, then you're going to argue that the guy who's accused of murder never was. You got to get get him to sign a release form. But no, as a journalist, I've decided I'm changing the focus of my story. I'm going to talk about this dead guy. Well, you never got his release, so you can't do it. You don't get a release from somebody. No, I know, but that's why I'm saying I think that. that. That's why I think it's a specious argument. Yeah. Go ahead, Toby. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> the only reason why John McLemore, why anybody has any interest in John McLemore outside of his like circle is because of S-Town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the only way you get into this kind of circular argument, which is he's a public figure, but the reason why he's a public figure is because you made it him a public figure through your, you know, your, your podcast. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do see like sort of, you know, as objectively as as I can be, if I was a buddy of his and Brian Reed was there, I'd be like, dude, he came to you with this one story. You came and talked to him. He's kind of a, you know, he's a, he's a gregarious guy. He's got these crazy things, but then he died and you came back and you made it 
about him being a closet homosexual, him being into this sort of S&M tattoo stuff, him, the way he fixed clocks and may have, uh, you know, uh, caused himself brain damage, all these other things that had really nothing to do with anything that he had talked to you about. And that would come across as a betrayal. Hmm. Um, so I think that's like legally, like, I don't know. I, I, I just, you, you, it's probably, it's probably fine. Morally, you know, I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit questionable because, hmm. because basically he went down there for one story, found a different story after the guy died and went with that one. And, you know, I, I could see where people would be like, that was not John's intent when he got in touch with you is to have all this stuff about his private life taken out. He was wanted to do a thing about this town and about supposedly this crime. So I will say this, and I feel strongly about this. In any story that is reported well, that's based on interviews, that's based on research, that's based on facts that are dug up and then put together as a story, the subject does not get to direct that ever. That is not a thing. It is not a thing that when you approach a reporter, even if you have a hot tip, if you have a hot tip that your boss is sexually harassing you and you approach a a reporter and you give them this juicy tip and then they pursue that tip and they find a bunch of other shit going down at your company, including stuff that you may have done, it is 100% within the reporter's purview to report and then tell whatever stories they find and take it in whatever direction they go. But it's fact-based. He didn't tell things that didn't happen, and he told them for he didn't tell them for no reason. He had a reason. Brian Reed's reason was to tell a story about a part of America where people live on the margins and have to hide who they are to the extent where they are grown men meeting on country roads for dalliances while being the best in the world at fixing clocks and having all these extraordinary capabilities. I mean, you can disagree with the premise of what Brian Reed was doing, but he did have a purpose. It wasn't for no reason. And it wasn't just to embarrass people. He found something. He told the story. He thoroughly reported it. I don't think as a subject you have any right after you have opted in and pursued somebody to tell your story to tell them where it should go. And I don't think that the friends of his do either. But I think the analogy that you made about there's sexual harassment going on at my company and then you investigate the company and you find there's other stuff going on. That, that's not really what happened here. This is like saying there's some sexual harassment going on in my company and then they end up doing a story about you like being a lesbian and having a bunch of tattoos. And that's the story. Yeah. And but that, that, this- that to me is like there's not a line from A to B. And I don't think there's a line from A to B here. You may say that it's fine that, you know, you, you discovered this and that he got in touch with you and he's this kind of guy. And so you can write a story about him being that kind of guy and that's fine. But it really, you know, it doesn't it doesn't relate to what he originally got in touch with. If he was like, come down here and do a story on me and do a story on my life and how I live and you find out stuff that he didn't want you necessarily to know about that, that's one thing. But if he's saying, come down and, and do a story on this other thing and then you're like, whoa, wait, you're kind of... You're kind of weird, and you've got this weird stuff going on. Like that—that's a—that's kind of a different. I kind deal, of think, think that's what he—he he knew that. I kind of think that he said, "Come down and do a story on my shit town," and that's the story Brian Reed did. 
I mean, that's yeah. that's yeah. what I think. So, Laura, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, I mean, honestly, like, think about it. But we don't know because no been... one signed anything. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. <laughs> and no one ever does. I'm sorry. That isn't a thing. Yeah. No. Sorry, Laura. That's, that's crazy. It's like when people say, how much are you going to pay me? And you're like, really? No. Nothing. Just like, just like, just like one, one caveat. I said no one ever signs a release ever. That's not true. When you get kids... On tape, sometimes yeah. you have their parents sign a release. Yeah. That's an exception. And, and some TV situation. Occasionally, yes, TV Image, situation. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. All right, sorry, I'm sorry, Gala. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. I'll be really quick. I was just going to say. I mean, you know, I I don't think it is unprecedented that somebody dies, and after they die, somebody writes a story about their life where they talk about things that people didn't know when they were alive. I mean, that is something that has happened, and that is something that continues. So, anyway, I have one more question. Uh, Laura, you're a working reporter, Kevin. You're a former journalist. Yeah. Laura, is there, and then the other thing brought up in the lawsuit, did Brian Reed have some sort of like um, obligation to report John McLemore's suicidal ideations to a therapist or a doctor or somebody? Is that a reporter's job to report those kinds of things um, in order to save somebody's life? Or is it a reporter's job uh, to report a story? I'm just curious. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's that's a really tricky one. I mean, and that also goes back to when I did defense work. And if I was involved in a case where something came up, I mean, very rarely were you able to ever say anything. And it was usually if somebody was threatening bodily harm. Right. But, you know, as a reporter, yeah, you have a, a you know, your responsibility is to report the story and not get involved. But I'm a type of person that if something, I mean, just me personally, if I f- am involved in something and I think somebody is going to need some help, I'm probably going to go behind the scenes and make some phone calls and just tip some people off. Hey, this person you might want to keep an eye on. Um, but that's just me personally. I don't know if that's journalistically correct, but that's just um, how I am. I'm a, a bleeding heart. I can't walk away when I think something bad is going to happen. Right. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, you are supposed to remain uninvolved. And, and, and you know, this is like why I end up rescuing cats. I can't stay out of it. So yeah. um, Kevin will probably have a, a more correct answer. Well, Kevin, I mean, my, my thinking is that like John McLemore was telling Brian Reed the same things he was telling other people. Brian Reed yeah. knew that because Tyler and he had a, many conversations about this. It's not like nobody was exposed in this community to John McLemore's stream of consciousness. Yeah, that's true. He shared it with everybody, and Brian Reed has that on tape, so why would Brian Reed think only he was privy to this information? Yeah, why would someone think that he's solely responsible? I, I don't know, again, I don't know in Alabama, but in, this, in the state of New Hampshire, a reporter is not a, a mandatory reporter. It's not like, like a teacher right. or a doctor if right. they have reason to suspect you know, um, someone's suicidal or they're being abused that they have to report. Uh, so he, he isn't under any legal obligation, and from what I like read out of um, the you know the different well, I mean, just from what we hear in the podcast, it wasn't like this was a topic that he obsessed about. You know, that he kept hearing him talk about. Right. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill myself. Right. I think there were probably some lines that like you know when he went back and listened to them, but I mean, it came as a complete surprise to Brian. So uh, yeah, so I don't think that he has. I just don't see how you say he has a legal obligation to have done something right. to have done something more than what any you know he didn't have that kind of a professional relationship with right. Him. I'll tell you, I've been watching a lot of Anthony Bourdain's old television programming yeah. in the wake of his suicide on many, 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 many of the shows he taped in the few years before he died. He would say things that sounded like suicidal ideations. I'm not just making it up. Watch them. You'll know what I mean. 
was the cameraman responsible for going to a doctor? No, I He's mean, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like he, unfortunately, he, when there's a suicide, in front of everybody, lots of everybody second guesses right. what they could have done, what they knew. Um, but if you're going to make a legal argument that somehow he's responsible, yeah, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see how that holds water. It's so, tragic, but yeah. you know, it's not a professional obligation. All right, so Kevin, what do you think the outcome is going to be of this lawsuit? Any guesses? I hope it's going to get thrown out. I mean, I just don't see, you know, how things are going to work out like that. You, you know what the effect could be on is the movie. Yeah. Because, you know, then when you're moving on, it's a different art form. And, you know, the, you know, is, is, is the estate going to make the argument, well, John McLemore never agreed to have his life story told in movie form. And right. then there's, you know, how does that get played out dramatically? I just don't know how you get this this conflict between First Amendment rights and the state law about the right of publicity. I really would like to see where it goes. I'm polling for S-Town's people because I think that's the way it goes. But, I mean, it does get me a little hot under the collar to think about it. Right. Which is, which is why I need a smoothie from Daily Harvest. Oh, Jesus. Because <laughs> it's hot outside and when you're walking yes. around on your your rage walk in the morning. Yes. yes. Sitting at the beach. The air conditioner is broken. You're just waiting for that thunderstorm to come and to mess everything up. You need to kick back with something cold from Daily Harvest, the subscription service that makes healthy eating easy with delicious plant-based foods that are ready in as little as 30 seconds. You get like these perfect portioned cups of frozen organic fruits. They come, you can set up your plan. You can get them weekly, you can get them monthly, and all you got to do is uh, throw in some milk or some water and you can throw them in the blender. Any kind of milk. Any kind of milk. Goat's milk, almond milk. So Daily Harvest is great any time of year, but really in the summertime when you want something refreshing. Laura, I know the thing that I'm looking at is they have a new flavor of smoothie called chai coconut. How does that sound to you? Oh my God, it's very funny you should mention that because I literally had that yesterday for lunch. Oh, what do you think? It was delicious. Now, if you look at the ingredients, like I would never put this together. It's got like cauliflower and and spice and uh, dates and uh, coconut. And I'm like, oh, that's cauliflower. That's interesting. It was so delicious. Um, it was like having a milkshake. But if I looked at the ingredients, they were all super healthy. I would also had MCT oil, which um, I was I had to look up. So that's uh, some sort of fat that's good for you. It's supposed to help you lose weight. Um, all very healthy things, and it was it was really tasty. Mm. So go to daily-harvest.com and enter promo code CRIME, crime. to get three cups free in your first box. That's promo code CRIME for crime. three free Daily Harvest cups at daily-harvest.com, daily-harvest.com. What else you got, Kevin? Well, you know, there are a million things demanding your time. Contact lenses shouldn't be one of them. Oh Simple Contacts lets you renew your prescription and reorder your contacts from anywhere in just minutes. Do Rebecca, they ever? Rebecca, what did you do yesterday? Literally, last night, I went to bed. I took my daily contacts out. I threw them away like I do every day. I opened the drawer to get my glasses and I realized, oh crap, I only have like three pairs of contact lenses left. I went boop, 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 boop onto my Simple Contacts app and hit the reorder button and got a year's worth of contact lenses on the way to our house. They'll be here like tomorrow. I don't have to call my eye doctor. I don't have to the whole rigmarole. It is the most amazing well, service. What's really great about Simple Contacts is not just that you can purchase a contacts 
at, at really great prices. Is that the way you can get them? That's right. It's because you can do a quick self-guided vision test. from Contact your, lens exam. It's amazing. From your phone. Now, you know, this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam, but for only $20, you can do this with your, your iPhone mm-hmm. and have it reviewed by a a real doctor. Yep. An actual doctor will look at that. your prescription for contacts. What did you do? You just held the phone out like a Literally, cert. you have to stand 10 feet away from it. So you put up your little and pop know- socket. You and if walk you're 11 back. or 7 feet, it knows. That's right. Right. It knows. It's amazing. It's an amazing app. I got to tell you, like for contact lens wearers, this is the way to go. I know. And that test, if you didn't have insurance, you went in place, that's like $200 right. to do that. And right. it's boom, boom, right there on your phone. I FSA'd that, by the way. You did what? Oh, you have <laughs> So our listeners will get $20 off their first Simple Contacts order. You just go to simplecontacts.com slash CWO20. CWO20. Right? Crime Writers on 20. Or enter the code CWO20 at checkout. Again, at Simple Contacts and get $20 off by going to simplecontacts.com slash CWO20. Or just enter CWO20 at checkout. I love something that saves me time. I really do. All right, moving on. HBO's newest prestige drama series is an adaptation of Gillian Flynn's. Did I pronounce that right? Yes, Gillian Flynn. Best seller, Sharp Objects. Amy Adams plays Camille Preaker, a troubled newspaper reporter sent to cover a series of murders in the hometown she's been avoiding for years. Makers, this. Double. Camille Preaker, you beautiful girl. Come say hi. Come on, big city. Come tell us about your adventures. Yeah, your exploit. Yeah. On the job. No rest for the wicked, huh? Nope. James Capici's mom made a call. Thank you. I'm surprised she bothered. She didn't seem to care that he had a gun. This fucking town. Guns and meth and pigs. No offense. None taken. As much a character study as it is a crime mystery, the series follows Camille as she struggles with her family, her drinking, and her behavior as a cutter, which is where the story gets its title. Will the star-driven, high-end, sharp objects thrill fans like Gone Girl or leave them disappointed like True Detective Season 2? Now, we're only two episodes in, but we will be discussing plot points from the show and maybe the book. So if you want our spoiler-free review, jump to the time code listed in the show notes. Now, the first thing I want to talk about about Sharp Objects is the storytelling style. HBO has certainly brought a stylized version to the screen here. I know that many people involved in this production were also involved in Big Little Lies. Uh, Very, very good at painting a picture in that production. Um, I want to talk about the design of the production, the feel of the production, the look of it. Toby Ball, thoughts? I quite honestly, I don't like the way it, it it's done. Um, I think these like little like fraction of a second uh, flashbacks, this sort of having the past and the present kind of blended at times and, and then like transitioning from one to the other very abruptly. I feel like this stuff has been done before. It's been done better, but it's still not good. Mm. So I was watching it. I was like, this was probably really fun to make. Yeah. But as far as like watching it, yeah, I, I find it kind of distracting and as though it's kind of trying too hard. And, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, a quarter of the way in or, or whatever 
like make a definitive statement, but I don't, to date, it doesn't seem to add very much. Right. But in your notes, Toby, you wrote to me, the cinematography is gorgeous. So do you stand by that? Well, that's what I said. I mean, it looks, it looks beautiful. Like there, there's no, like it's, it's top notch, like the actual filming and the look and things like that. It's, it's more sort of the editing and the storytelling techniques that they use that are, uh, sort of uh, distracting, I think, to the story. Right. Now, Kevin, I lean toward this as uh, kind of a, in the in the tradition of Southern Gothic storytelling, mm-hmm. the production design is like over the top beautiful, to, down to the detail. Right. Not just like the beauty of the fabric of Camille's mother's dresses and the wallpaper in their house, like all that <laughs> stuff is perfect. Yeah. The, the town landscape is perfect, but even the car that they have Camille driving that like busted up old Volvo kind of tells a story about the character. This is old money. Like, you don't need to make a leap to know that she probably got that car as a teenager and is still driving it. Like, a lot of detail here in this production that I think is very intentional and is trying to serve the story. What do you think? Yeah, I think, right, the production values are very high, and I think that's what you would expect from an HBO limited series like this, especially one where you have such star power with Amy Adams and Patricia Clarkson and, you know, some of the other uh, uh, faces that we're going to see. So I think it checks that box. Uh, You you know, I think that's sort of, uh, you know, fee for entry uh, in order to be a an HBO series like that is that it's got a there's got there can be no rough edges around it. The question just comes down to uh, is the story any good hmm. and is or is it executed well? And I think that's you know kind of what we'll have to decide is is this a story worth paying attention to? Right. One of the things that I know Lara bothers both of us. Yes. Now, granted, there's source material here. We have Gillian Flynn's yeah. book. Who read it, by the way? Just around. I read it. I read right. it, but it was a while ago, so it took me a while to remember. I right. was like, "Oh yeah." So Toby and I, one. Toby, you and I don't haven't read it. We don't know where this is going. Uh, no, I, I did read it. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay, I'm the only one then. Okay. Well, I'll say yeah. that like I didn't read Big Little Lies, mm-hmm. so I do yeah. think I enjoyed it differently than mm-hmm. someone who had yeah. read the book would. Yeah. I have read this. Do so, you guys all know who did it? So I'm the only one. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm watching it for different. Uh, but I'm okay, watching yeah. it for different. But I mean, who knows if they'll go in that way right, or not? We okay, know HBO right. sometimes just yeah. fucks with you that right, way, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. But also, like, I'm watching it for different things because I don't know. Okay, yeah. And and yeah. you know, one of the things I'm really paying attention to, and I know the source material in the book. In the book, I think the Amy Adams character Camille was a much more hardcore cutter than she is in this adaptation. Yeah. Like Laura, I don't know. Like I remember in the book, like she's so disfigured that like the minute she like pulls up a sleeve, people are shocked. And that's not really yeah. the case here. That's sort of more, I mean, we see her self-harming. We know that she's a cutter, but you know, the character, we can see her in a bathtub and we aren't horrified like we would have been if we saw her the book character in a bathtub. Um, but yeah. one of the things I want to just talk about, because I know this is something that bothers you and also bothers me, is this never-ending trope of Ugh. lady reporter or lady yes. investigator or lady like who's supposed to solve the mystery as hard drinker, trash can person who can't seem to pull themselves out of the mire, right? Yeah, this this uh, I, I remember this from the book, but I don't remember. I guess I don't remember it being this um, blatant in in the book, or maybe it's just the. I said, God, it's I think maybe, you know, so we start off and it's like this, this character, um, Camille, it's like, 
every five seconds she's drinking vodka out of her water bottle. She's got a nip in the morning because she's got to get up. She's got to have some mouthwash because now she's she's like a trained professional. And I'm like, I'm so sick of seeing the same thing over and over. And maybe it's because we just watched it. Was it seven seconds where we had the prosecutor Mm -hmm. who in the beginning is just drunk all the time? I'm like, oh, for crying out loud. Could we have a different like thing that's wrong with the protagonist in this story because I'm just tired of seeing this. Yeah. And maybe it means she's playing the role very well, but it, to me, it was so distracting and so aggravating. So I was just like, ah, oh, enough already. Like, let's get back to the crime or the mystery that's happening here. Like, you know, it's just this, oh, we're so, she's so troubled. I'm like, I get it. But, you know, so it just, to me, it was very distracting and I feel like it's just been overused and lately. And obviously this book was written before for other things that we've watched or listened to where this has been an issue, but it really, it, it just bothered me. I like that you brought up seven seconds, uh, Laura. It's a, it's a good comp for a lot of the different um, points on this story. You know, it's it's interesting when you talk about sort of her, her bad behavior because we have seen a lot of great performances out of anti-heroes. Or her damaged for, behavior. But we've seen this from a lot of other characters that we've really... Uh, revere who are men yep. like Tony Soprano, like Walter White, Don Draper, right? Like these people who act and we're like, oh, what a great performance about, uh, you know, man's flaws. But when we start talking about women's flaws, does it end up being a gender thing? Because I think that, unfortunately, I don't think that we, we look at female characters who act that way in the same way that we just we don't see the the tragedy we just sort of see them in a negative light that we shouldn't be it's not how, how we they, how could we don't afford them the same yeah, sort of see I, I don't think that it's how we see them i think it's nope, how they're portrayed it's how they're portrayed if you look at don draper right uh-huh. so don draper is an alcoholic yeah. sexaholic self-destructive self-harming asshole right who we see in every Who's other also scene, also a little bit suave, right? No, is that and, his redeeming quality? But in quali- every yeah. other scene, he wins. Okay, he wins right. the pitch. He okay. wins the meeting. Okay. He wins the lunch. Right. He okay, wins- you're right. Tony Soprano the same right. way. And when we Walter see White, yeah. women in these characters, they do it, but they also fail. Yeah, and they also oh, need okay. a man. Oh, to yeah. believe in them. Okay. So in this story, we have her editor, mm-hmm. right? Who's like her, like Ed Asner, like that guy in the background with his wife. And yeah. he's like, I believe in this scrappy young reporter. And as 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 viewers, we're supposed to believe in her. Like she's yeah. going to solve it, whatever. Like yeah, I like characters who are challenging and are written that right. way. They don't have, you know, if they're not perfect, that's great. Right. But I'm kind of wondering why... Is it? I hope. Hopefully, it's not just this me. But I feel like. This is why I like Sheila in Wild Wild Country. Yeah. Because she okay. sucked. Okay. No, but no, she I'll... won like over and over and over. Again. And oh, she was I'll... like, "That's why." Honestly, she was like the anti-hero in that. Okay. I can take that away from the discussion. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. See, uh, my objection wasn't that. It's just that, you know, the alcoholic, troubled, damage detective has just been done to death. Yeah. I mean, yeah, male that, and that's female. what I mean. It's just like I mean, it's like you're like the editor who's got like the whiskey bottle in their desk or something. I didn't think of her character as being like, oh, here's an here's another chick who's got a, a drinking problem. It was just like here's another you know investigator with the exact same flaws mm-hmm. as like fifty other investigators that we've all read the books about, and you know it's just it's with the with the cutting part. That was the part that was like a little twist on it, I guess. Yeah. But to me, it just seemed tired. And I thought the, the thing I thought was a little 
sort of gender specific was the way that the newspaper editor treats her, yeah. which is like, it's hard to imagine a like late 20 year old guy being treated the same way. Like a daughter. About, like, oh, I had to send him to his town so he could confront his, hmm. you know, his demons and come out the other side <laughs> a better person, you know? It's just, it's such fucking bullshit. We yeah. did send I, you to Bear Island to do this podcast, Toby, right. so you should, yeah. <laughs> Did, Toby, you better confront your demons while you're there on Bear Island. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's I, why I, you're I'm there. I'm doing it right this second. Yeah. Well, your Twitter photos are great, by well, the way. Let's, let's just talk out. about like, the, the portrayal yeah. of journalists. Because, right. I mean, I think, I mean, I know that we're getting nitpicky and we should be talking about like who maybe killed these girls or whatever, but that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. I, for one, I know a lot of reporters. I work in, literally work in a newsroom with like 10 reporters. Nobody is a mess. Everybody shows up. Does their job. Oh, but you don't know that. Goes home. Yes, I do. Because I follow them all on Instagram. I know they all do. <laughs> they go home. They walk their dogs. They have dinner with their wives or husbands. They go for hikes on the weekends. They're regular people doing a job. And there's this like like media mystique around reporters. Like, by the way. It's, it's romanticized well, in I that can't profession. Say that it's not romanticized among bankers, right? <laughs> but no. there's but percentage wise, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just what the population is. Right, yeah. Laura? Yeah, well, I will say, I mean, uh, you know, not to get too specific, but I, in my newspaper career, have worked with um, some folks. I do remember one person that used to come to the morning story meetings on Tuesday morning with vodka in their water bottle. So I have seen this, um, but I, like Toby, I'm tired of this being like the flaw that we always have for journalists. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen it recently, but th- this was like 20 years ago, and, and I was like, huh. And I remember when I figured it out, I was like, oh, that's not water. Well, journalists water do bottle. drink. I mean, I go to journalism conferences, yeah. and I will tell you. And if you look at that, there's like a study, that like the hardest drinking professions, and I believe that yeah. journalists, frankly, are up there. Oh, well, then why are you, th- why are you throwing but, shade? But they're not this. It's a, it's a statistically validated stereotype. Would this, this woman... <laughs> but, but there's different... Would yeah. this woman but, have but the job she has? But she's drinking on the job. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's different. Yeah. She's just, like fucked up all the time. She's not drinking yeah. at a conference. She's drinking at a job. But <laughs> anyway, she's not doing karaoke yeah. like in seven All right, seconds. well, let's just get a little bit deeper because I really think that what this uh, well I want to I want to bitch about journalists one more minute Rebecca because I I'm just she's there to do a story I never once see her say to somebody can I interview you can I talk to you she's just lurking around like and then somehow mysteriously she manages to write these stories and send them in so that that bothered me that it was completely unrealistic portrayal of how a story is actually researched and reported. I want to talk about where those two things come together in a really great scene. Okay. Where it's, you know, her flaws and whatnot in the journalism and the dynamic with her mother, which is during the funeral. Yeah. The scene where she tries to write and the mother keeps reaching over and pulling the pen out of her hand. Yep. I don't know why. It's a small thing and it kept happening. But to me, it was super powerful in an annoying and infantilizing way. And that just it, it, it was greater than the sum of all the parts there of you trying to do your thing and your mother reaching over and saying you can't and taking the pen away from you. And you're a grown ass woman trying to do your job. Yeah. And she has no right to do that. But she can still do that. You're an I embarrassment. Thought, I thought that that little vignette was was super, super powerful. Well, a lot of families vignettes here like the yeah. like the Camille Adora dynamic but the Adora with her 
super weird, constantly headphone wearing, totally mentally absent husband. <laughs> Dynamic. He's got a high five. Weird. Who dances and listens to music? Yes, yes. And at some point, somebody put up and let's just like give a nod to the set designers. That super like poppy green wallpaper with all the flowers and birds. Like that is a great piece of set design right there. But like the Adora Camille thing, we see these flashbacks with the dead sister. Whoever cast that young actress to play young Amy Adams in that show Mm, deserves an Emmy just for casting because (laughs) hot damn does that young actress look just like Amy Adams. But let's just talk a little bit about these like sort of more Southern Gothic aspects of the story. These family dynamics, these flashbacks, these dreamy sequences. Everyone in this town has magical thinking. A girl dies in the river, so we're going to pull all the rocks out of the river and destroy them. The cop who believes that like he can solve the case by buying a pig's head and yanking the teeth out <laughs> to learn something forensic from that. There's a lot of kind of fantastical elements to the story. You know, the the one murder victim who everyone said dreamed about being a girl, but like Amy Adams goes into her room and she's actually keeping a pet tarantula in there. So clearly that is not the case. There's sort of this dreamy, going home, weird, kind of supernatural, magical thinking aspect of the show. Toby, what do you think of that part of the storytelling? Is that working at all? No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Zero amount working. Okay. I I think this is pretty poor, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. There's no depth to anything. Mm -hmm. Amy Adams is is kind of interesting, I guess, but there's nobody else in the... in the show so far that I've seen. And maybe, again, we're only a quarter of the way in, so maybe things will change. But there's nobody who seems to have any depth to their character. Mm. Like, you meet them, they seem a certain way, they continue to be that way, and then you see them again, and they're still that way. Yeah. And you can predict how they're going to behave all yeah. the time. Well, I'll make I'll make one uh, counter argument to that, which is the uh, aunt or friend, I'm sorry, I don't even know what her role is, that woman Jackie, who's yeah. like, she's fun. And she's, she's surprising. And I know, Laura, you like that good-looking cop from out of town, right? I do. The one who hauled the pig's teeth out. Yeah, I find him to be kind of an interesting character. He's an outsider. You know, one of the, pretty much the only outsider that's in this show. But aligning with Amy Adams' character, because they both appear to be drinkers. Um, so it seems like he always turns up when she goes into a bar or a liquor store. So yeah, and you know, this, this, what Toby was talking about in terms of the characters, and we talked about this sort of like weird, like jumping around between all these different scenes. It was driving me nuts when I was watching it. And I was like, Oh, this is just I can't follow this. Like, what is going on here? And then I thought about it. And I feel like it's almost like sort of mimicking what is supposed to be like the mental health of Camille at the time that this is happening to sort of so you're feeling as disjointed as she is feeling in her life at the time that this is going on so you're you're almost in that same sort of like boy I better drink up because like I don't know what the hell's going on I'm jumping all over the place but but it's sort of mimicking where she's at and it's also was kind of slow like the pace in terms of the story getting going so I'm really hoping with episode three things sort of speed up a little bit Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. Because it, it, it was hard to follow yeah. for me. Even though I had read the book, I found it hard to follow. Now, Kevin, the thing that we haven't talked about at all is the fact that there is a mystery here. We've got two dead That's girls. That's the thing that there's, there is um, not a lot of focus on this mystery. I mean, right. I think, I mean, who is the victim? Uh, Mrs. McGuffin? I just, 
<laughs> it's like it doesn't even matter. Yeah, it, Teen it, Queen MacGuffin one and Teen Queen MacGuffin two. Yeah, it just um, I I think that the they could make that a little bigger. I mean, to Laura's point, I mean, when we do these things and we watch the first two episodes, I really feel like. The better sample size is three episodes because I still feel like they're building the roller coaster and they're not riding it yet. And that can be really good. And we have seen things like really change for the better or for the worse after the, those first two episodes. Yeah, the, the crime part of it is not really well defined. I mean, there's some girls are dead and we don't know anything why. It's kind of like, well, other than the fact that we need to find the killer because that's what you do. What is really compelling about this? Case? Right, right. You haven't heard that yet. Well, let's leave it there. I mean, right. I don't feel like we got super deep with the story, but we talked about a lot of things that stuck out to us. So How about let's just the just... one that we haven't mentioned, which is the words flashing in yeah, different places? Really had, there's a lot of clues you got to look out for. I think that I haven't seen that anywhere, and I think it's really interesting, and it is fun to look for that. It's fun to look for it, but it's definitely a show where you have to just look at the one screen and not look at a second one because you'll miss a bunch of shit. Yeah, you can't watch this. You can't. You got to put your phone down. When you do no, it. <laughs> it's fine. We can hit pause and then go back and show me when it says "scared" on her arm and then "scared" on her car door. Or I get scarred. It. Or scarred. I get or it. Both. I get it. All right, uh, let's do that thing that we do. Let's give our thumbs up, thumbs down recommendation about Sharp Objects on HBO. Do we think? Our listeners should check it out and perhaps watch the first two episodes and beyond based on what we've seen so far. Thumbs up or thumbs down, Laura Bricker. I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Oh, boy. Um, You know, I'm going to go with thumbs up because we've only seen two episodes. And, you know, there are some issues for me so far. But I think overall, I mean, pretty much any series like this that's a book that a book I really liked um, is adapted to screen. It's got to be something you continue watching. And Amy Adams does a really great job in this role in terms of, you know, playing this very dark and troubled character. There's a lot of great scenery. There's a lot of great cinematography. I I feel like the first two episodes aren't my favorite um, for things that we talked about, but I'm not going to give it a thumbs down because I'm going to keep watching Yeah, um, because I want to see what happens next. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Sharp Objects on HBO? It's a real big thumbs down for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think of Gillian Flynn's three books, like this is by far my least favorite. What's your favorite? I think Gone Girl was, you know, it became such a a thing that it became kind of annoying. Yeah. But it's actually well-written. And I just think from a writerly standpoint, and I, I assume that this is not, <laughs> this is not a spoiler anymore, but this idea that you would halfway or a third of the way through the book, like basically be like, well, the first third I was lying and yeah. this is the way it really is. Yeah. I think it, it, that was a big, you know, it was nice. It was a was nice a brave mo- thing to do. It, it was a nice moment work. in the book. Yes. Right. And then dark places I thought was just a stronger, stronger story. Mm. Uh, but but Gone Girl, I think, is the best written of them. Anyway, I just think it's really, it, it looks great. I I would almost prefer to, like, put on some tunes and just watch it mm. without listening to what's Zeppelin, going on. Some Led Zeppelin, perhaps? <laughs> some Led Zeppelin. Um, because I think the the story, the characters are just really not what you'd expect from, like, this kind of prestige TV. Right. Well, I'm going to give it a thumbs up uh, and a reserved thumbs up only because I know I'm going to keep watching it. I read the book. I'm interested to see how they do the treatment of the book. Um, I do think, however, that they changed the wrong things. And by the way, Toby, you just made me think, imagine how great Gone Girl would have been as an HBO series instead of that stupid movie with Ben Affleck. 
It could have oh, yeah. been a great TV series because of the twists and turns in the book. Like, you can take the last sort of like coda of it out, but like, what a great single season TV series that would have been. Anyway, uh, this series I think has potential. I love, love, love Amy Adams. I love Patricia Clarkson. I love the sort of whole Southern Gothic sensibility and the weirdness of it. And I'm going to keep watching it. So I have a lot of problems with it, but I'm going to give it a thumbs up only because I know I'm still in for episode three. And so if our listeners want to tweet with me about episode three later, I kind of want them to have watched episode one and two. Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, I'm I'm exactly with you. I I am a mild thumbs up because, and this is the only reason, because even though my assignment of watching this is over, I will continue to watch it. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I mean, maybe on Twitter I'll say after episode six, well, oh, that was a stupid waste of time. I don't know. I still like to feel that maybe this is building somewhere bigger because it, it is kind of plodding along slowly. I'd like to hear a little more about what this crime is and why it's important. The lead character is interesting because as far as a, we'll call it a character flaw, being a cutter is not something we see very often. We do see people who drink too much, and we do right. see people who have troubled relationships with their parents. This is not an expression of, of a, that we see in a lot of characters, and so I'm, I'd like to see dramatically uh, where that goes. Um, and I do you know, certainly like these little flashy clues. I'm really into this whole like idea. Like the puzzle. I do like the puzzle. Yeah, yeah, let's have a puzzle here. Yeah, yeah. And let's let's move it and see where it goes. You know, there's no reason to believe that Amy Adams won't deliver a, a fantastic performance. And I do like all those little visual cues where words pop up in different places that may be helpful or not. You know, we have a, an unreliable narrator perspective. I think that that's great. But, you know, if you have trouble seeing all those, you know, those visual clues because of eye strain, you'll want to get some Felix Grey glasses. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'll help. Yeah, they uh, are the perfect fit for your eyes to protect them from things like digital eye strain. Mm. You know, 60% of Americans have digi- report digital eye strain. So like in this podcast, like two and a half of us have that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when you, you think of it, there's a, a large percentage, I think it's either between 40 and 60%. We spend eight hours a day in front of a screen. Eight seems conservative. Yeah. Well, you know, at work, yeah. you know, and that's a big thing. And that leads to headaches and blurry vision and stuff like that. One way to cut down on that is to wear glasses made by uh, Felix Gray that will help with filtering the blue light and eliminating the glare from the screens, which are two of the big culprits in digital eye strain, so that you can do your work and uh, remain healthy. Rebecca, what did you think of my glasses I'm wearing right now? They're fantastic. Are they Felix Gray? They are. You never even notice. I never noticed. Because they they are fantastic. And I will tell you something else, super secret. These Felix Gray glasses prescription lenses. Oh, so you don't have digital eye strain and you can actually see. That's right. Now, I bonus. It's they're not available on the on the website just yet, but stay true. I I, I am living proof that for those of us uh, who who need a little extra help with our eyes, you can get both. But no prescription is required to order your pair of Felix Grey glasses. All orders ship free with free returns. So you've got nothing to lose. You go to felixgrayglasses.com slash crime to try a pair of Felix Grey glasses today. They look great. Believe me, that's felixgrayglasses.com slash crime. Crime. Felixgrayglasses.com slash crime. Crime. What else you got, Kevin? Well, I heard this uh, set up in the uh, the All-Star game quite a bit where he would just say, How good are the Red Sox? How good is Mike Trout? How good is he? How good is wine? 
How good is it? Wine is it fantastic. How good? <laughs> wine can be very good, but you might need a little help kind of picking the things that you like. Yeah. That's where First Leaf comes in. They're First the, Leaf. The only online wine club that uses your ratings to make personalized wine selections it's that algorithmic. mask your taste. Right. You, you go on the, the website, you just go click, they ask a couple kind of questions, red, white, international, blah, blah, blah. they come up with a great list of, of three wines for you to try. And that's where the thing starts going from there, and it just gets better and better. I did it today. These were the lines, wines that they picked up for us that we'll be drinking, Rebecca. Uh, they picked out a Jax and Swan Pinot Grigio. Perfect. Telling Bird Zinfandel. Perfect. And uh, from France, the Le Doulier Exquisite. I said that wrong completely. Totally. It's okay. Totally. It's a red blend. 91 points. Uh, that's good. For yeah. Wine Spectator. Yeah. And these are, right. these are wines that are retailing for $20, $25 or more. They got great reduced prices at First Leaf. And when you order your first three pack of wine based on your flavor profile, You'll get all three wines for just $5 each. These mm-hmm. wines, like I said, go for like 20 bucks a piece. So with First Leaf, you never have to worry about spending money on a bad bottle of wine because they guarantee you will love the wine you buy or you'll get your money back on that. Try First Leaf Wine Club today where buying great wine is simple. Sign up with our personal link and you'll get an exclusive intro offer. It's three bottles of wine for $15 in free shipping. It's a good deal. And that's not all. If you, you rate those three wines... And tell them what you like, and yep. so they can pick the next ones. You'll get an extra ten dollars off your next box. So nice. go to tryfirstleaf.com/crime. Crime. That's tryfirstleaf.com/crime. Crime. Now it's time for my favorite part of this podcast—a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, the, of week. the week. An on-the-job accident has left one Japanese worker dead, and his coworker is facing manslaughter charges. Police say Yoshiyuki Yoshida died after his co-worker shot highly pressurized air up his butt. <laughs> the culprit said it was just a prank, but after the butt blast, Yoshida became ill and died soon after. Doctors believe the compressed air damaged his lungs, leading to his death. Surprisingly, this is the fourth compressed air in the butt calamity at Japanese factories this year. (laughs) In one of those incidents, another worker was fatally injured and government authorities aren't sure how to deal with the growing crisis. Now, fellow crime writers on panelists, I don't think you've been shooting cans of compressed air up your co-workers' butts. Not highly compressed air. But I am wondering, what office prank are you least proud of? Laura Bricker, what about you? I haven't done a lot of office pranks, but I did go through a phase where we used to make like fake uh, newspaper front pages. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I did one that I wasn't super proud of where I compared somebody to Bat Boy from the Weekly World News. Nice. Ah. Nice. What about you, Toby? What office prank are you least proud of? Yeah, I, I'm with Laura in that I haven't done a whole lot of office pranks. When I was working at Congressional Quarterly in D.C., they opened a Taco Bell like seven or eight blocks from the office. So we decided, uh, a buddy of mine and I decided we would make a Taco Bell run and uh, got orders from all these people. And on our way back, we just like opened up one of the tacos and took a big bite out of it and then wrapped it back up and put it back in the bag of like 45 tacos. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, my friend Matt ended up getting it. That's, that's regretful, Toby. That's regretful. <laughs> um, I have one. I actually yeah. have one. I actually still feel bad about this because it still pops up. My coworker, who I adore, Taylor Quimby, who's been working where I work almost as long as I have, 
when he first started working with me was very young, still was wearing all the clothes he had in college. And one day showed up in a new pair of pants that he was super excited about and just kept asking questions about, what do you think of these pants? Do you like these pants? Clearly, this is somebody who was not used to buying clothes for himself. Mm-hmm. So I made a Facebook page about Taylor's new pants <laughs> that immediately got a few hundred followers because <laughs> I was like, I don't know, kind of a dick about it. And it was embarrassing uh, for both me and him. And that Facebook page may or may not still exist. So if anyone's interested in looking up Taylor Quimby's new pants on Facebook, I'm not saying I'm proud of it, but it may still be out there. What but, about you, Kevin? But you didn't blow hot air up someone's ass. No, yeah. I did not do that. Uh, I, you know, I I don't have any pranks I think that went horribly wrong. But as far as like ones that I thought were really funny but fell flat was this pretty simple one where I went onto everybody's computer keyboard and I switch the M and the N mm-hmm. and just switch the keys because there's a lot of people who hunt and peck. It's like a newsroom prank. It is a news, yeah. Well, I went, I didn't do it in the newsroom. I went over to the office part <laughs> where all the suits are and they're trying to type like commercials and things like that yeah. and, and reports. I don't know. I just, uh, I, you know, then I was admonished and said I had to put them all back. Did you mean you were admonished? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Laura Bricker, before we wrap up the show this week, do we have a cat of the week? We do. Um, I'm, I love this cat of the week. The cat of the week is Nigella, owned by Christine Woodhouse outside of Atlanta. Um, Christine is a, also, like myself, a certified cat lady since birth because her parents had a cat named Sam who slept in her crib before she was born. And didn't And they her. saw no reason to stop letting Sam sleep in the crib when they brought her home from the hospital. Hmm. So Nigella was rescued when she was nine months old. Supposedly her first two homes hadn't worked out for mysterious reasons, but Christine, being a certified cat lady, solved the mystery, found out that the cat had been outdoors um, for a few months and had a taste of the outdoors and decided she'd rather live there. So when she came into new homes, she ended up peeing on people's beds. Oh. And... And then she won her freedom, and she has never been happier. So she is like the official mayor of the condo complex where Christine lives. She socializes. She hangs out at the pool. She helps herself to open doors and walks in and visits people. I mean, she has her own Facebook page, Nigella the Cat. Nice. Look that up Um, instead of Taylor Quimby's pants. It's more productive. Yeah. So I am now following Nigella along with all my other cats that I follow, um, including I just found one in Australia tonight that goes swimming in the ocean. (laughs) Nathan, the swimming cat. So, uh, but Nigella wins this week. She was very cute. All right, Laura Bricker. People people want to submit their cats or dogs or ferrets or squirrels or foxes or other pets for cat slash pet of the week. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, people want to reach out to you and perhaps argue with you about sharp objects not being as bad as you think it is. How can they find you online? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, people want to reach out to you and perhaps... I don't know. Just tell you, hey, how can they find you online? You can say, hey, at Kevin P. Flynn. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash crime, and use the code crime at checkout. When you do, you'll get a free month and you'll get access to our show, Married with Podcast. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And when you do, you will immediately have access to Toby Ball's deep 
Dive Book Club podcast. It's pretty great. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This podcast was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, a.k.a. the closet in our basement where no one has ever stuck a safety pin under their fingernail or found secret words on walls. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Toby's gone again. Oh, my God. We lost him. <laughs> if we do this without Toby, it's going to be the most one-sided uh, S-Town conversation ever. <laughs> We're all going to be like, I don't know what the fuck people's problem is with S-Town. I know. The hell? I, that's kind of where I stand. Partners in Crime Media. Don't be a victim of digital eye strain. No. Protect your eyes with a pair of Felix Grey glasses. Their lenses are designed to filter blue light and eliminate glare from screens without the telltale yellow tint of other computer glasses. Try a pair of Felix Grey glasses today at felixgrayglasses.com slash crime. That's felixgrayglasses.com slash crime. Crime. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions.